0: It's heartbreaking when we give someone a gift and they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to get the full worth out of it. And friends, in many ways and in many instances, the church is no different. The church is a gift from God to you that he has given you. And often, because we don't know really all the incredible blessings that God has for us in the church, we miss out. We don't know what to expect. We don't know all the astounding benefits that we could get from the church and that we could give to the church family, that we settle often for a surface level engagement with the church family. And so, friends, over the next few weeks, as we consider God's design for the church, I want to call you to expect more. To look for more whenever you engage with this body of believers. Expect more today when we gather on Sundays. Next week, expect more from yourself as you use your gifts to serve and bless others. Expect more from the friends and family around you because we are a family, not a club. Expect more from the leaders that God has given you who are keeping a watch over your soul. And even to expect more for the world because God is going to use the church to change the entire earth. Expect more, friends, because your view of the church is way too small, and so is mine. And that's why we need God's Word, to change what we believe about the church. Sometimes one of the barriers that's keeping us from really diving into the community of the church is a fear of what people will think about us. Sometimes we're worried, well, I don't know if I've got it all together, so I don't know how much of myself I can show. I don't know if I know as much about the Bible as those people do, so I don't really know if I should even come to a small group or get involved in discipleship or speak up in conversation. Sometimes fear of what other people think about us keeps us from being authentic and real in church. But friends, because Christ has died to bring you into the church, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. The entire foundation of the church is not our goodness, but the goodness of God in Christ. And so we have nothing to fear as we come into the church. And God invites us to gather together as believers every week, and he's doing so to absolutely change your eternity. Expect more when you come on Sundays, because this isn't just a baptized pep rally. This is God's plan to keep you forever. The main thing that I want you to take home today as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, 10 is that Jesus died to bring you in, and the church gathers to keep you in. Jesus died to bring you in, and the church gathers to keep you in. As we read through this passage, we're going to see a lot of incredible truths come out of it. But specifically, the author is going to highlight for us two objective truths, two things that are definitely true about you that you need to believe. And then in light of that, he's going to give us three action steps, three things that we ought to do. So, so two things that we have and three things that we should do. Jesus died to bring you in, and the church gathers to keep you in. So first, Jesus died to bring you in. The author of Hebrews has been telling a fantastic sweep of a sermon in these first ten chapters of his book, explaining the wonder of this Christ who stands to serve and save his people because our sin has separated us from God. Our sin separates us from God. It's made us us worthy of God's wrath and condemnation. It's made us his enemies rather than his friends. But in Christ, God launches a plan to bring rebels back into his family. And Jesus did that at the cross. So the first thing that we have if we are in Christ is access to God. Himself. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus died to give us access to the holy places. We read earlier in our service from Hebrews chapter 9, which describes the holy places of the Old Testament, where God dwelled among his people in a tabernacle and then in a temple. And that was his covenant dwelling with his covenant people. And because God is so holy, only the priests could enter those holy places. And even the priest, only once a year, and even once a year, only after they had been cleansed from their own sin. But now we have a better news. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Not by our own righteousness, but by the blood of Jesus. So we have confidence, friends. It's not only priests that can come into the holy places. Jesus is inviting you in today. He's inviting every Christian in today. Into the holy places. And we don't enter like the priests did. Only once a year, but constantly. We have confidence to enter this holy place. And we don't enter as the priests did through the blood of an animal. But through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of of Christ, because Christ is the only person who lived free of sin. He was perfectly free of any crimes and any rebellion. He is the only person who had no sin to separate him from God. He is the only person who ever lived who could go rightly into those holy places and not be completely obliterated by his own sin. And then Jesus died on the cross and by his blood welcomes you in because at the cross christ was paying the penalty for your sins and for my sins jesus died to bring you back in you were a rebel separated from god unworthy to enter into god's presence and jesus died to save you and then Amazingly, victoriously, he rose from the dead three days later. And he stands there in those holy places calling you in, welcoming you in. He's still alive today, friends, calling out to you. Christ died, friends, to pursue you when you weren't pursuing him. When you were running away from God, in rebellion against God, Christ died to save you. And so now we enter into the holy places, not with fear and trembling that our God might destroy us, but with confidence because he has already destroyed Christ, who came out on the other side victorious. It's astounding. Friends, we have confidence to enter the holy places, to be with God himself. The holy place is not the church Some people say, oh, you know, the church is the house of God, and the Bible does use that as an image, but it's not talking about this room. It's talking about the people, because God dwells in us. And so we have confidence to enter the holy places, to come close to God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, the new and living way, better than the way of animals slaughtered in our place That has to happen every week and every day and every year, but a once-for-all sacrifice. And he opened this living way for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, Christ's flesh torn for you to welcome you in. We have access to God himself. And the second thing we have is a great high priest. So look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, And... Since we have, so note the repetition there, verse 19, since we have confidence, and now verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. The book of Hebrews has been establishing this case up to this chapter that Christ is the greatest high priest who is welcoming his people back in. So what does it mean for Jesus to be a high priest? Well, I think the author of Hebrews gives us three things that it means. First of all, well, what is is a priest anyway in the Old Testament? A priest was someone selected from the people of God to mediate between God and man. So the priest represented man before God. They offered sacrifices in man's place so that they could come into those holy places. And they also represented God to the people. They taught the people the will of God. They taught the people the word of God. They represented God to the people. They represented the people before God. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be a high priest? It means that he does that. It means that he stands before God as our mediator. And, and, and he stands before us to show us what God is like. So specifically, the author of the Hebrews just outlines three astounding things that Jesus does as our high priest. First of all, because Jesus is fully human, he's able to sympathize Secondly, because Jesus is fully God, he's able to stand before God in those holy places. And thirdly, because he is fully free from sin, he is able to save. He's able to sympathize, stand, and save because he is a perfect high priest. So, so let's just walk a little more detail into each of those. He is able to sympathize with us because he is fully human. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Christ is able to sympathize with you. He sees your weakness, he sees your plight, he sees your temptation, and he's been there. And because of that, he's able to patiently wait and serve you. Christ is not begrudgingly waiting on you to get your act together. Hebrews 5.2 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because Christ is fully human, he's able to sympathize even with ignorant, wayward, foolish people like me. Because Christ is fully human, he's able to sympathize. Because Christ is fully God, he's able to stand before God. So if a sinful person stood before God, they'd be completely obliterated. But Christ is not a sinful person. He is fully God, perfect, holy, spotless, blameless, never having sinned in word, thought, deed, action, attitude. He never sinned by doing the wrong thing. He never sinned by failing to do the right thing. He's always been perfect. And so he can stand before God and not be obliterated. He goes before us into the presence of God. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, into that holy place where only the priest could go. Christ goes there, and this is our hope, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So Jesus stands before God, not just to get there and be like, oh, look at me, take a selfie and send you a postcard. He goes there as a forerunner. He goes there to make a place for you, to prepare the way for you to come in. And while he is there, what is Jesus doing right now? He's advocating for you. Hebrews 9:24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ is presently advocating for you. He is standing before God the Father making your case. And that case is not, oh, like, God, don't don't look at Doug today. He's kind of messing up today. But he did pretty good on Tuesday. That's not what Christ is saying. He looks at your sin. And he he says, God, that person is crazy. That person is sinful. But I died for them. They're covered in my blood. I was righteous. I was righteous. I am righteous. Christ is endorsing you. So that God will accept you. He's advocating for you. Maybe some of you saw, there was a movie on Amazon Prime that came out a few months ago about, uh, about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And, and Lucy was apparently uh, accused of being a communist because she technically was. She was a member of the Communist Party. And so some papers leaked this information and, and, and the, whole, the whole empire, the whole I Love Lucy empire is about to fall out from under them, about to completely be destroyed. And, and then one night before the live taping of I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz called President Herbert Hoover, and President Hoover spoke on Lucy's behalf and said she was a fine American. He'd never seen any kind of communist ideologies in her, and that, that the American can continue to trust her and look to her as an entertainer and as an icon. Because the president endorsed Lucy, the United States was able to continue to accept and because christ endorses you god is able to accept you he accepts you on christ's behalf he accepts you because christ is good enough not because you're good enough friends christianity is so ridiculously counterintuitive because we always think that we can get to god by being good enough and the exact opposite is true We don't get to God by being good enough. We get to God because Christ is good enough, and he stands before God advocating for you because Christ is a perfect high priest. Because he is fully human, he is able to sympathize with you. Because Christ is fully God, he is able to stand before God for you. And because Christ is fully free from sin, he is able to save you. Christ offered a perfect sacrifice for sin, which wasn't some immaculate goat or cow. He found the perfect cow and he sacrificed that and he said, okay, now we're good forever. No, he sacrificed himself. Hebrews 7.27, he, Christ, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself so in the old testament you have imperfect priests offering imperfect sacrifices that could never pay for sin christ comes and he offers a final perfect sacrificial lamb himself the punishment that we have earned for our sin was poured out not on a lamb but on christ the lamb of god who died in our place. It's astounding. And because of that, he is the source of our eternal salvation, a salvation that will never fade, that will never disappear, that will never run out. Hebrews 5, chapter 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews seven twenty five. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is alive and he will never die again. And if you trust in him, you will be alive and you will never die again. You will live with God forever because Christ is fully free from sin. He is able to save you. Friends, this is our Christ. This is our priest. What a wonder. What a savior. What an astounding gospel story that God saves rebellious sinners by offering his son. And so what do we do in light of this? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What do we do? We draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near Christ has purchased access and he wants you to use it. He wants you to draw near. Friends, don't let anything keep you away from God. Don't let your sin and guilt keep you from God because Christ has paid for it. Don't let your doubt keep you from God because Christ is alive and he can prove himself. Don't let your guilt keep you from God because Christ is calling out to the ignorant and the wayward, like me, and saying, come in, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Draw near to God. And the second thing we must do, verse 23, so look, verse 22 and verse 23, they both start with, with the same command, let us, da-da-da-da-da, verse 23, let us, and then we see it repeat again in verse 24, but verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The word confession is a little confusing for us because typically when we say the word confession, we're talking about the admission of guilt. Like oh, I confess that I really did commit that crime, and that's definitely true. The Bible uses the word that way sometimes, uh, but it's also an attesting to the truth. Maybe you've heard of a document called a confession of faith. It's a statement of the truth. It's a statement about what we believe, and, and so God's people here are called to hold fast to preserve, to not let go, the confession, the holding on to of our hope. And we hold on to that hope without wavering. Because why? He who promised is faithful. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. Christ is a perfect high priest who will never turn you away. And so your hope will never expire. Your sin will never outmatch God's grace. Christ stands ready to call you in, to welcome you in. God is faithful and he's calling you to trust him faithfully. To persevere, to not let go, to hold fast the confession of our hope. And it is a sure and certain hope. Because Christ died for our sins and he rose again and he will never die again. I thought we were going to talk about the church today. Why would we start a sermon series about the church here? Because this is the foundation, friends. The church is not an event that you go to on Sundays. The church is not an organization that you are a part of. The church is not a nonprofit that you donate to. The church is a family. Almost every time that Christians address one another in the New Testament, they address one another as brothers and sisters. Why? Because the church is a family, even closer than our biological family. Because the church is not just a loose affiliation of people based on common beliefs. The church is a family of brothers and sisters by blood. Not the blood of biology, but the blood of Christ. Christ didn't die to just make you a better person or to make your life a little bit better. Christ died to bring you into his family. When you were running hard in the opposite direction, Christ called you in and he died to save you. So friends, enter into the church. If you're not a Christian today, enter into the church. This isn't just your parents' thing. This is something that God's inviting you to. If you're a child here today, under the age of 18, that's something I want you to think about. This isn't your parents' thing. This is something that God's inviting you to, to be a part of the church. He's calling you to do that. And the church is not a club. You don't get in by paying dues. You get in by someone else paying on your behalf, by Christ who died for you and rose again. You don't get in by paying dues or being good enough. You get in by being covered in the blood of Christ. And so, friends, in light of this truth, I want you to be set free from your anxious people-pleasing that might keep you from really engaging fully in the life of the church. Because you don't have to perform. It doesn't matter what people think about you at work, whether or not they respect you. It doesn't matter in one way how people perceive you on social media. Because God sees you and God accepts you. You cannot impress God. And that's scary news. You don't have to. And that's one of the best stories in the universe. It's one of the best truths in the universe. May God set us free from the need to be impressive because Christ is the glorious one. Jesus died to bring you in And the church gathers to keep you in. So we've seen this command to hold fast to our confession, to not let go, to persevere. And then the rest of this passage is going to explain God's plan to help you do that. Because Christ is not just saying, Okay, I've saved you. Don't mess it up. Christ says, I've saved you, and I'm going to go with you every step of the way. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm not going to let you go. The church gathers to keep you in. The church gathers each and every week as a crucial act of perseverance, of preservation. If you leave cheese on the counter, it's going to get disgusting and moldy. You put it in the refrigerator to preserve it. And if a Christian doesn't gather with the church, they're not going to be preserved. They're going to get stinky and moldy and gross. The church gathers together every week as a crucial act of preservation. We see in verse 24 a third thing that we must do. That repetition. Again, let us. And what do we do? Let us consider. Think carefully about this. Consider it. Don't let this fly by. Consider How to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in these verses, God gives us the task and he also gives us the tactics. He gives us the task. To stir up one another. Now that's an interesting phrase. We don't say that very often. To, to really stir up one another. Other Bible translations use words like provoke one another or stimulate one another we are called, we're given a crucial task to bring about something in one another. And what is that thing? We consider how to stir up one another. Two, what are we going towards? What's the goal? What are we provoking in one another? Love and good works. That's the task that we are given. You, friends, Are given the task to help others grow in love and good works. Not to earn God's favor, that's already been done, but to walk as His followers. He gives us the task and He also gives us the tactics. How are we to accomplish this crucial task? By gathering together. Verse 25. Stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, a lot of people see the church gathering as this individualistic thing, where we go and we get the spiritual fill-up, where we get like a pick-me-up on Sundays that gets us through the week. And when we view the church that way, then we think pretty poorly about it because we think, well, you know, the music at this church doesn't really move me, so I've got to go somewhere else. Or the preaching at that church isn't really all that great, so I've really got to go somewhere else. And, of course, music and preaching and content are important things, but we shouldn't think so individualistically about the church. We gather together, not just for a personal spiritual fill-up, but to accomplish the particular goal of stirring up in one another bringing about in one another love and good works have you ever been to a meeting at work that was just completely pointless like you, everybody gets there and they're like whose meeting is this i don't know did you call i don't know i didn't call this meeting where's the is, is there an agenda for this meeting what are we what are we trying to accomplish and people like, talk around in circles for a while, and you like, want to like, bang your head against the table and walk out and quit and never come back again because you're like, this is the most pointless thing I've ever done. Nothing is going to get accomplished in this meeting. Friends, the gathering of the church, the meeting of the church is not like that. There's a particular goal. There's something that we're trying to accomplish. To stir one another up in love and good works. So friends, that's why it says in verse 25, don't neglect the gathering. Because you have a very clear assignment. Don't neglect the gathering because you have a job to do. Just imagine if, if at your work this week, you, you had an all-hands meeting with the president or the director of your organization. And everybody, everybody needs to stand and give a report on what they've been working on. And you just don't show up to that thing. You neglected your task. You failed to to serve your team. You failed to fulfill your duties. And friends, if you neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, then you're missing out on the task that God's given you to stir up one another in love and good works. Flip it on its head. You're also missing out on the opportunity to be stirred, to be provoked, to grow in love. I don't think there's anybody in this city Well, maybe there's probably a lot of people, actually. I think that probably most people in this city say, I'd like to be a better person. I'd like to love more. Probably everybody in this room says that, yeah, I'd like to be a more loving person. Well, friends, the gathering of the church is God's plan to do that in you, to bring that about in you. So don't neglect the gathering, as is the habit of some. Couldn't someone say that about you? That it's your habit to neglect the gathering? Oh, friends, expect more. Expect more. God is preserving your life through the gathering. God is through you preserving the lives of your brothers and sisters through your presence at the gathering. Oh, friends, expect more. Don't neglect the gathering. And why? Why is all of this so important? Verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So God is giving us here a warning. He's giving us a threat that if you don't persevere, you will not stand before him positively on Judgment Day. And we have to do a little bit of theology to understand this passage because we do know that God's true people will never fall away because God will hold them on to the end. You see this just a few verses down in Hebrews 10.39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls So the author of Hebrews, even just a few sentences after this stern warning, is giving us confidence that God's true people will never fall away. We do have faith. We will not shrink back. We will not be destroyed. We will preserve our souls. Or even Jesus made even more clear promises in John chapter 10. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will, here's the guarantee, never perish. And, another guarantee, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And what's the grounds of that promise? How could Jesus make such astounding promises? He goes on, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, we can't lose our salvation because the Father is more powerful than anything that could pull us away. So what do we make of people who are followers of Christ on the outside and then do walk away? Well, those people weren't ever really truly given the gift of eternal life. 1 John 2.19. They, those people that left, that apostatized, that abandoned the faith, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They used to be around. They were never really in the family. For if they had been of us, if they had really been in the family, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. God will preserve his people. God will keep his true people to the end. So why on earth does he give us a warning? Like here in verses 26 and 27. If God will definitely keep his people, why give them a warning? Because God is going to use these warnings as the means by which he will keep you. It's like if you said, if you were a parent and you said to your child, don't run into the street because I don't want you to die. Like, well, that would put the fear of cars in your children's life. It doesn't mean that if they run into the street, they will certainly definitely die. No questions asked, guaranteed, promised. It means that you're giving them a warning to keep them from danger. If you don't obey that warning, you will. But the warning will save you. The warning will preserve you. And for God's true people, these warnings are always effective. So we gather to stir up one another because it's crucial that we persevere. God is going to keep his people from falling away and he's going to do it through the gathering. This is not a baptized pep rally. This is God's plan to keep you out of hell. So friends, I want to encourage you to expect more from the gathering. To not view it as just an event to go to or a club to be a part of. But as God's appointed means to keep you until the end. So how do we do that? How do we make the most of the gathering? I'm going to give you a list of things that I want to encourage you to do. Habits that I, want you to, that I want to encourage you to form. And I want you all to pick at least three of them and make these things a habit. To start to do these things. And ask somebody else today. Ask them for accountability. Because the gathering in the church is the means by which God will grow you. Including in these ways. How do we make the most of the gathering? Come weekly. Don't neglect the gathering. Be here more often than not. Come weekly. Prepare prayerfully. Pray for the service. Pray for me as I prepare to preach. I need it. Pray for Hudson as he prepares to lead music. He needs it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Pray for us, friends. Pray for everyone involved in the service, for the kids' workers, for the people who will pray and be involved in the service. Pray for the the other elders of the church as we encourage one another and encourage the church to to follow after Christ. Pray for yourself. Pray that that you would be humble to receive the word and that God would use you to, to encourage others, to stir up others and pray for others. Pray that God would use you to preserve them, to stir up love in them. Pray for the conversations that you'll have. If you want to have more fruitful conversations at church, pray for them. Say, pray, God, I pray that you would help me encourage someone today at church, at the gathering. You could pray for that. Come weekly, prepare prayerfully. Hold on to your seats, this is going to upset some of you. Arrive early and stay late. I don't know how many of you have any kind of background in design, but in design, there's a really crucial principle called white space, where if you fill every inch of a piece with content, then you get overwhelmed and your design looks really silly and and kind of worthless. So it's important that we fill designs with white space, because it's in the silence that the true meaning of the design can really be brought out. Does your Sunday morning have any white space in it? Have any empty, unplanned moments where you could do this? Stir people up. Be stirred up. Have fruitful conversations. And I want to encourage those of you who are parents with young children, it is hard to get here, period, let alone to get here early. But friends, your presence is worth it. It's worth it. Your very presence will encourage people and teach us about the gathering. So come weekly, prepare prayerfully, arrive early, stay late, actually speak truth to people. This is another practical tip that I want you to take. Ministry is not something for paid professionals. The word ministry just means service, like serving one another. So don't leave the serving and the stirring to the paid professionals, because there's not that many of paid professionals around here. Ministry is something for every Christian. Several people have told me recently that they didn't feel like they had permission to say things, to speak truth to people in the church. Friends, that's absolutely crazy. Christ is the king. You're his ambassador. He's given you his authority. So use it. Encourage one another. You don't need permission. And as you speak truth to people, be sure to speak to people that you don't know very well. We're a family, not a club. And so only talking to your friends is not an option. It's unfaithful. Come weekly, prepare prayerfully, arrive early, stay late, actually speak truth to people. Remember, I want you to take 3 of these things and do really do them. And sing loudly. Know the words of the songs we sing. Because Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do we teach one another? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You are teaching the church. Some of you are like, Oh, I don't want to be a preacher. I don't want to get there." You are called to teach the church by opening your mouth and singing the words that we sing together. Sing loudly. Humbly listen to the sermon. When you come to listen to the sermon, don't come pridefully to judge a speech because mine aren't going to hold up, honestly. Come as needy people who need daily bread. I've heard it said that sermons are like meals. You don't remember most of the meals that you eat, but they kept you alive. You don't remember most of the sermons that we will preach But God will use them to keep you alive. The the judge of a faithful sermon is whether or not it unfolded the text and pointed you to Christ and the kindness of God. Not how memorable it was or entertaining it was. And another tip for making the most out of the sermon is to open a Bible and follow along. Because just taking my word for it or another preacher's word for it is like trying to listen to someone describe the Grand Canyon. Don't just take my word for it, friends. Open the Bible and look at it. See it for yourself. See the wonder for yourself. I don't know if you caught on, but when I preach, every time I get up here, all that I want to do is walk phrase by phrase through a passage. And so following along will help you see where I'm going and where I got these things. Open the Bible and follow Along and take notes if that's helpful. If that's not helpful, if it's distracting, then throw them out. Don't take notes. And finally, come weekly, prepare prayerfully, arrive early, stay late, actually speak truth to people, sing loudly, humbly listen to the sermon, and be fully present. From the moment that you walk in to the moment that you leave, be present. Be on the lookout for people that you can talk to, people that you can encourage, people who are sitting alone and invite them into your life. Be intentional and present the whole time that you're here. And that means, friends, put your phone away. Leave it in the car if you have to. But your messages and posts and, and stories can wait. Wait. Be present, be on the lookout for people that you can serve, people that you can stir up, people that you don't know very well and ask them to stir you up. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up now. And as we close, I think you all see and understand how precious the blood of Christ is. And so I want you to think about some implications of that. If Christ's blood is precious, that means that you, saints, are precious. Because Christ's precious blood was spilled to purchase you. You are precious. And if Christ's blood is precious, and the people that he has purchased are precious, then that means the gathering, the means by which God will keep you, is very precious. Because God is using it to save his people, to preserve his people. It's like a life vest to keep you from drowning on all the sin and negativity and and temptation and evil and wickedness and, and doubt and persecution in the world. It's like a life vest to hold you up, to keep you from drowning. The gathering is precious, friends. So let's treasure it. Let's treasure it together.